This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Hollywood, to the undiscerning American, especially those of you who are young people here today, those loud, very powerful and influential images, because we are an image-based culture, a sight-based culture. Those powerful images that declare eternal sameness without hurting anyone's feeling or making any judgments, that seem to extinguish all differences or at least dismiss them on a level playing field, that deconstruct opposing beliefs into an all-unifying good intention. Those images sell. Those images are powerful. Those images are easy to grasp and easy to believe. The question is, are they true? That's what we want to look at this morning. Because when you go simply on image alone, those images have a powerful tendency to capture your heart long before your mind has a chance to be engaged, don't they? So you believe before you think. We want to think today. You know, it says many faces, one voice. That's what the movies tend to preach and prophesy, at least today. But I want you to know there's a time coming where even that's going to change. Last fall, I had the opportunity with a small group of pastors to go out to Hollywood. We were invited out there by DreamWorks, the studio that Steven Spielberg uh, and uh, Jeffrey Katzenbaum and David Geffen are the owners of. And they ask us out because they are in the process of producing a new film. And that film is four years in the making. It'll be released next November, 98. It's entitled Moses, Prince of the Nile. And their invitation to us to come out was primarily so that we could come out and look at the film as it's been developed so far, to listen to the score, to listen to the script, and to see how, since it is a religious film, with a religious story that is, to see how we would react as evangelicals, because they're interested in evangelicals buying it. So they showed it to us, and uh, then we had an afternoon of just interacting with uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and talking to him about it and our impressions of it. One of the controversial aspects of that film, believe it or not, has to do with the voice of God as it speaks from the burning bush and from heaven. It's no longer the thundering voice of James Earl Jones. It's not that way anymore. It has been politicized. What they've done, and they told us about it, and Jeffrey Katzenberg even said, you know, since I believe God is in everyone and in everything, what they've done is, is that they have taken the voices of men and women and young children and teenagers and older adults with different dialects and through the use of digital computer programming, they've slowly melted them down into one voice. But really, it's many voices speaking, and that is God's new voice that will soon be released. Remember, Thanksgiving, 1998. But you know what? I think there's a subtle message in that, and that's what they wanted to get our feedback on. They wanted to see how we felt about that, about God's new voice. Is it God's new voice? Or could it be now just another nuance, another subtlety, if you will, that God's voice is not really God's voice at all? That in reality, with religions, God's voice is really our voice speaking to ourselves. 
Well, those are the things, many faces, many voices, that's out of Hollywood, and no doubt Hollywood will be asking us next November, does this better meet your expectations? As cultures merge, as the global village becomes smaller, as religions and peoples of different stripes are pressed together and have to get along with one another, is that true? Are all religions basically the same? Well, this morning before we buy Hollywood, and this is going to be somewhat of a heady message, and I know that. But before we buy Hollywood, I want you to think with me today to get us started because we're going to be faced with this more and more and more. In fact, I had a gentleman who came up to me after the message who works in prison ministries for Bill Glass, and he says we're constantly being confronted by all kinds of different religions that are being propagated in our prison systems today. We need help with that. Let's start with a definition, first of all, is what is religion? I want to give you a concise definition. It's this. Religion is an organized system of beliefs and practices and worship that seeks answers and assurances to things otherwise impossible to know. I'll give you a chance if you want to jot that down. But that's really what religion is. It's a, it's a system that people have come up with of beliefs and it leads to practices in worship, which we're a part of even this morning, that offer answers to us and assurances to us concerning things that nothing else seems to answer. And so otherwise they would remain in the dark. And here's our help, and it's called religion. Everyone has what theologian Paul Tillich calls ultimate concerns. We all have those. And it's not just confined to our culture, it's in every culture. What is the meaning of life? That's a mysterious question. Someone said to me this week, there are two great events in every person's life. One is the day they were born, and the other is the day they discover why they were born. What's the meaning of life? What's the difference between right and wrong? Why is there evil in the world? Why is there unjust suffering? We want to know. Those are mysteries to us. What is going to happen to me when I die? Is there another life? Offer me some assurances and some answers to these things that otherwise I'd know nothing about. Those are ultimate concerns. That's the interest and the intent of religion. You know, there have been thousands and thousands of religions. That's what sometimes is overwhelming to the undiscerning person. To the person who's just beginning this journey, it can seem so overwhelming because there are thousands of religions. It would be impossible to list them all. What I've done this morning to get us started is just reduce them into some categories. I want to give you four types real quickly that you can jot on your outline that helps us kind of get a little bit of a handle around the religions of the world. There is what, first of all, I call ancient religions, meaning those religions that have come and have disappeared. Now, they've disappeared for different reasons, some just through the use of time and civilization. Others have collapsed because of the own, their own impotence of belief. They were found out. They were seen as frauds, and they collapsed like a star collapsing into a black hole, and they went out of sight. Some of those are like Mars, the god Mars. Does anybody know about the god Mars here today? The Roman god of war that the Romans for centuries worshipped and sacrificed to and gave allegiance and duty Aphrodite, the great Greek goddess of love, one of whom stood as Paul walked into that pantheon of gods in Athens, 
when he preached the message to the unknown God in front of all these respected religious leaders of the Greek civilization that has now come and gone. Who knows about Kukulkan, the plumed serpent god that was worshipped in South America? Or the pharaohs who were living gods whose people sacrificed everything to build them great pyramids, these great chambers of resurrection and new life and afterlife. And yet they didn't rise at all. Because when we opened them up, we found them still there. We display them in our museums. Or even more recently, the god of the rising sun, the emperor of Japan. Did you know that up until the end of World War II, the Japanese saw the emperor as the living son of God? He was to be worshipped. He was deity in the flesh. But that's come and gone since Hiroshima. It's passed away. People don't believe that much anymore. Those are ancient religions. A second category is what I call primal religions, which some have come and gone, but many exist even today among primitive peoples. The soil and grain gods of the Chinese, the African spirits, the Haitian voodoos, the Indian worship of the great eternal spirit of nature, and those have been embraced by primitive people for all time who have an intuitive sense that there is a God and I'm not Him. You know, it's so interesting that anthropologists say that from their records, as long as there has been man, recorded man, there has been religion. And that's because man somehow instinctively senses that there is something bigger than himself. And he's created religions to help answer those questions. That's why in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, God has set eternity in our hearts. It's there, even though we're fallen, it's there. It's in every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. There is a sensation that there is life beyond this life because God has placed it there. And these primal religions give acknowledgement of that. Then there are what I call the major religions of the world. Those religions who, even to this day, spiritually lead our planet. You can go to every part of the globe and these, some of these religions will dominate in that geographical sphere. And all the practices and the customs and the ideas that flow into the social network of that society really find their roots back to these leading religions. I want to give you the five leading religions of the world from the oldest to the youngest. Let's look up here on the screen. First of all, it's Judaism. Judaism is the oldest major religion of the world. Founded in 2000 B.C. by Abraham. That's why the Jews look to their father, Abraham. I've given some numbers just to get, give you a sense of how many people belong to these different religions. In Judaism, there are 18 million practicing Jews today. In 1983, there were 14 million. So they've grown in 10 years by 29%. The second oldest religion is Hinduism, founded in 1500 B.C., there was no personal founder. You can't point to one person because it was a merging of peoples and writings that ultimately came a body of literature that became a body of belief that's now known as Hinduism. There are 751 million Hindus. That's up 44% from just 10 years ago. Next is Buddhism, founded in 500 B.C. by Prince Siddhartha, who later became Buddha. There are 334 million 
Buddhists in the world today, up 36% from the 244 million just 10 years ago. And then we come to Christianity, founded in 33 AD by Jesus Christ. There are 1.9 billion Christians as of 1993. That's up 100% from just 10 years ago when there were 951 million. And then lastly, the youngest of the major religions is Islam. Islam means submission. Submission to Allah, the one true God. Muhammad founded Islam in 600 AD. There are presently one billion Muslims in the world today, which is up 86% from just 10 years ago. Those are the major religions of the world, and they dominate the religious landscape even today. A lot of the ethnic tensions, the wars, the social unrest, as well as the social stability flows from these five major religions that continue to lead this planet. And then let me offer lastly a final category that I'm just going to call the new religions. And by new I mean religions that have been born in the 19th and 20th century. We can see their birth and their development over these last two centuries. And we are increasingly coming in contact with these religions in Arkansas, around us. You will touch these religions because they're very vibrant. They include Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, Christian Science, and even more recently in the last 40 years, Scientology, New Age designer religions of all various stripes, Wicca, a religion of witchcraft that's presently growing in our world today, Sophia worship, which has sprung up in some of the mainline churches. Sophia is God, the worship of the goddess Sophia that feminists have escalated up next to God the Father to give equality even in the Godhead. And then finally, the Unification Church. Moonies, as they're known, their founder being Sun Yun Moon. Now, when we list all those types, when we put those categories, we at least get a little bit of a handle around religions. But now comes the question, how are we to view these as Christians? What should I be our response? Let me, let me give you two responses that people tend to generally run to when they regard other faiths other than their own. And both of these responses, I think, are neither helpful or healthy. Okay? So I'm telling you how not to respond here at the beginning before we'll tell you how to. The first is what I call the arrogant view. As in, we're right and they're stupid. It's a condescending kind of view. But now listen very closely. You know, the truth is that most religions, if you've ever had a chance to really interact with somebody of another religious faith, most religions are a sincere attempt to seek and find God. When somebody is religious, they've already crossed the bar from non-seeker to seeker. They're a seeker. They're wanting to know God. They're wanting to find a higher purpose in life. They're wanting to know the meaning of life. They're wanting to better themselves, to master, in many cases, their evil instincts. Islam had a wonderful moralizing effect on the Arab world. If you read about what the Arab world was like when Mohammed was there, it was a very immoral, decadent society. And he was repulsed at what he saw. Whether an angel gave him the Koran or not, the moral code that's flowed from that has cre created stability and morality in people's lives. So religion is a, is a sincere thing. 
And what it illustrates in a person's life is the deep spiritual hunger that they're willing to acknowledge. They're willing to tell you about that. And for us, as a Christian, or for someone in another faith looking at us, to look down on that is wrong. If anything, it should humble us. If anything, it should elicit, at least from a Christian standpoint, compassion for the seeker. They're seeking. And if we think they're wrong, then we shouldn't kick dirt in their face. It should put more of a tear in our eye. It should humble us, not inflate us. It should cause us to have compassion, not contempt. So to be arrogant, to mock, to speak in a condescending way is wrong. If we go to the other end of the spectrum, there's an equally erroneous response, and that is what I call the open acceptance view, as in whatever works for you. If it works for you, great. It's like the lady on the video. You know, Buddha, Baptist, as long as you're sincere, it all works. And if it works for you, great. But you know, that view ignores the mind. And unfortunately, we live in the world of soundbite, celluloid. But it ignores the mind and the host of critical differences between religious faiths, some of which directly oppose one another in their viewpoints. They're antagonistic philosophically. One can't be right and the other right when they both think the other person's wrong. It's like it led one person to believe, said, listen, it's not that all religions are basically the same. I can't buy that. I could buy the proposition, which is much easier, that all religions are basically wrong. And not that they're all the same. Not that they're on equal footing because they won't allow themselves to do that. So the person who glibly just and naively comes to the open acceptance view has done something that is happening right now in the American landscape and around the world. It's a very subtle change, but it is a very devastating change to truth. And here's what it is. It's when sincerity of belief replaces truthfulness of belief. That's devastating in any realm, but particularly so in religion. That God is not interested in what you believe, only that you believe. Do we believe that? That God is not interested in what you believe, only that you believe something, whether it be Jesus or Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy or Hale Bop. Do we want to go that far? Is that true? Are all religions basically the same? Let me do two things here for a moment. Let me first of all just, first of all, answer that question with a cautious, very cautious yes answer. All religions are the same in some ways. They all have a belief in a God or gods. They all have doctrines that teach about who these deities are. Structurally, they all have teachings and codes of conduct as to how to live before those gods. Every religion has that. They all have sacred stories, whether it be Mohammed in a cave speaking to the angel Gabriel and getting the Koran, or whether it be Joseph Smith bowing his knee before the angel Moroni in North America and receiving the golden tablets that become the Book of Mormon, or whether it becomes Moses on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments that are part of our Bible. Every religion 
has sacred stories that buttress the faith. They all employ rituals. And you know one of the universal rituals every faith employs around the world is prayer. Everybody has an instinct desire to pray. It's part of the fabric of every faith, prayer and meditation. So in these general categories, all religions do find some common ground. But listen, before everybody jumps up and joins hands and we all start singing, we are the world, okay? Before you do that, before you hear me do that, let me offer, let me offer some stronger no's to religious universalism. For instance, would we be willing to say that Christianity and the worship of Chak, Chak is the Mayan Indian god of the Mexican Yucatan, that those two are basically the same? I want to introduce you. Here, here's Chak up on the screen. And I got to meet Chak this summer when I was on vacation. My wife and I went to Mexico, and part of the time that we were there, we went out to the ancient city of Chichen Itza in the Yucatan. And there in Chichen Itza, is the famous uh, pyramids, Mayan pyramids that you see sometime in your literature, and altars and buildings and temples to warriors. It is an incredibly impressive place. I've been to the pyramids and now I've been to these Mayan pyramids. And let me tell you, we have missed a whole culture of South America. And up on the warrior's temple, at the top, as you view it, is this guy, Chak. And if you'll notice, He's bent down with this flat space on his belly, which is pointing up to heaven, because this is part of an altar. It's called the Chakmul, the altar to Chak. And this is where the priest, the Mayan priest, would periodically come and they would bring certain of their slaves or certain of their children. They would paint their faces blue. They would go through a ritual. They would come up. They would lay their children on this altar and rip their hearts out. And then they would place those still living, beating hearts on this altar and offer them up to the god Chak so that he might bless the nation and believe in the goodwill of the people. Now, here's the question after mentioning that to you. Is our God who upholds the sanctity of human life? Is our God who has created us, as he's told us, in his very image? Is our God who has written in His holy word, Thou shalt not kill, who has moved us as a people to socially engage our society even as it moves more and more to this kind of paganism to pull back from it and regard human life as sacred. Is our God the same as Chak? Can we make that illogical leap? Is that possible? I would answer no. You would have to sandblast your logic to come to that conclusion. Chak has much more in common with Planned Parenthood than he does with Christianity. He's different. He's not our God. We're not the same. Let's get a little closer. Let's, uh, let's move to our day and the religion of Mormonism. Is Christianity and Mormonism basically the same? If you got this month's Time magazine, you saw that on the cover is... Mormonism. It's called Mormonism, Inc. The Secrets of America's Most Prosperous Religion. And in it, there is an interview with the president and some statements about it. And these are just pulled right out of time. I don't want you to see me in any condescending way. I just want to read them for how they were reported. And here's what it says. It says, Mormons reject the label polytheistic pinned on them by other Christians. 
And yet Joseph Smith clearly stated that God was once a human-like being who had a wife and in fact still has a body of flesh and bones. By the way, he's not talking about Jesus as God here. He's talking about God the Father. Mormons also believe that men are in a process known as deification and they may become godlike. As man is now, God once was. And as God now is, man may become. This is Mormonism. Mormonism excludes original sin, whose expiation Christians understand as Christ's greatest gift to humankind in dying on the cross. Such teachings Christian reg Christians regard as heretical. The Mormons have responded to such challenges by downplaying their differences and mainstreaming their similarities. In an interview with Time, President Gordon Hinckley seemed intent on downplaying his faith's distinctiveness. The church's message, he explains, is a message of Christ. We can all say, Amen. At first, Hinckley seemed to qualify the idea that men could become gods, suggesting that, quote, it's of course an ideal. It's a hope for a wishful thing. But when pressed by the time correspondent, later affirmed that, yes, of course, men can become gods. And then he added that women could too, as companions to their husband. We Mormons can't conceive of a king without a queen. Now I read you that because I want to ask you a question. A thinking question, not a feeling question, not a celluloid image, not an advertisement that shows the family all loving one another and it ends with Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. And everybody goes, aw. Do we believe that God the Father, who is taught in our scriptures as a spirit, is a man? Do we believe that he's married and has a wife? Do we believe that the doctrine of original sin is wrong? Do we not believe in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, which they deny? Do we believe that man is an original sinful creature and we suffer the fall? Do we believe that we're going to become gods? Do we believe we're going to be married in heaven? Do we believe those things? See, Mormonism believes those things. And Mormonism wants to say to the world, we're Christian. And unthinking Christians have an open acceptance view. Arrogant Christians laugh at the sincerity of their faith while they prosper around the world. Thinking Christians understand that they're seeking God and have compassion. But they understand that Mormonism is not Christianity. It's a religion. It's just not the Christian religion. How would Jesus respond to all this? I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4 because this is an encounter around the conflict of religions. And as you turn there, most of you are going to recognize this as Jesus' encounter with the woman of Samaria at the well. And that's a notable encounter since Jews, and Jesus was a Jew, had absolutely nothing to do with Samaritans. And the reason they had absolutely nothing to do with Samaritans is because of their religion. It would be like how I felt about Texas years ago, you know? <laughs> when Jews wanted to go up north, rather than walking through the logical place, Samaria, which was the most direct route to the north, they would walk around the whole country so as not to defile themselves. That's how I went to Mexico. I just flew over the state of Texas. <laughs> Didn't want to touch it. They had incredibly hateful 
separatistic feelings with these Samaritans. But Jesus is different. Jesus was always different. He's incredible. He's compassionate. He's humble, even as the Son of God. And so he engages this woman. And rather than putting her down with a religious arrogance, that perspective I've already addressed, he reaches out to her in compassion. That's the discourse you see in the first 18 verses. He reaches out to her. He, he engages her in a spiritual discussion. He probes her spiritually. He is the Son of God senses her spiritual hunger and longing and need. Let me tell you, as we find out in the text, she had a real need. I mean, she had gone through five marriages. She was on her sixth relationship, but she chosen in the sixth one not to get married, just to live in with her boyfriend. So she was a failure at relationships. And that's always attached back to something that's in me. And how does that relate to God? See, when people have problems, they always want to blame the other person, but when you've been through five marriages, you quit talking about the other person. You start saying, there's got to be something wrong with me. How does this relate to God? That's where Jesus got the hook in, in this discussion. And so as He talks to her out of compassion and out of this humility and with love, and with insight, she begins to understand this guy has a real spiritual sense about him. Look at verse 19. And she even says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And by saying that, she's going to now bring up an issue, a religious issue, because she sees, he's helped her see that she has a real spiritual need and she's in need of real spiritual help, but there's a problem. There's a problem here. The person who gave her that insight is a Jew. And she's a Samaritan. And that leads to this statement in verse 20. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people, you people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. In essence, this is what she's saying to Jesus, and Jesus sees it clearly. You perceive my spiritual need? It's a real need. So where should I go for help? To my religion or to yours? See it? Now listen closely, because of what Jesus is going to say is very, very important to our day. In fact, the great theologian and expositor G. Campbell Morgan said this, he said, Jesus' response here is so profound that sometimes I think we can hardly grasp its significance. You almost have to pick through it carefully, word by word, because all of them are loaded with meaning. Look at verse 21. Here's what he says. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. In other words, he's saying, listen, it's not a place... We think it is. A lot of people think it is right now. But I, as a prophet of God, and you're right, already know that this place won't even be standing 40 years from now, nor will your place. They'll be wiped out by the Romans. They'll be gone. It's not a place. Okay, if it's not a place to go to, what is it? Notice the next verse. He says, You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now go back to the first line. Because now he's pointing to her. You worship... That which you do not know. Jesus is saying, I see you have a thirst for God. And listen, you're a seeker. I can see the Spirit in you hungering for God. You've got the right first ingredient. But there's something that you lack. You know what they lack? You know what she lacks? She lacks truth. You don't have that. Your religion and its worship, no matter how elaborate it's been over the years, it's really just a religion 
that's based out of ignorance. It's a religion that's earthbound, grasping for some contact with the other side. And you've built a system of beliefs and practices and worship to help give you assurance and answers to things that you couldn't know, but it started from the earth up. And it's out of ignorance. And it may offer hope for a time period, but it can't really deliver. And without you understanding where the real information is, even though you're spiritually sincere, you're not going to find the real answer and you're not going to find the living God and you're not going to find the eternal water that I was speaking about earlier in our discourse. Now I want to make an application and listen closely. If this woman had been a questioning Muslim, if she had said, our fathers worship in Mecca, and you in Jerusalem, which is right. If this woman had been a questioning Hindu, our fathers worshipped in the Indus Valley, and you worship in Jerusalem, which is right. If she had been a questioning Mormon, our fathers worship in Salt Lake City, and you worship in Jerusalem. If she had been a Scientologist, our fathers worship in Hollywood, and you worship in Jerusalem, which is right. I want you to know Jesus would have answered each of those kind of women the same way He answered the Samaritan woman. He would say, you don't know what you're doing. You've got a heart. You've got a passionate spirit. And you've got a system. But it's all earthbound. It's all out of ignorance, really, is what He's saying here. And without that truth, without that other component attached to your zeal, your religion is futile. It reminds me of the image I had when I was a college student. I went to work in a place called Point Pleasant, West Virginia. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It's right on the border between West Virginia and Ohio. And it gained its fame because of a bridge that, that was there. And one day on that bridge at noontime, high noon with the bridge packed, the bridge collapsed and fell into the Ohio River. And that summer, right after that took place, that's when I came to town and I went down to see where the tragedy had occurred. And it was very interesting because they'd still left half of the structure up. It had not been torn down. And you could walk out on that half bridge. I think that's what Jesus is saying about religions. They are sincere and they offer hope. And it's better to walk out on the bridge than not walk at all. But when you get out on that bridge that starts from earth up, there comes a place where it can go no further. It can't complete the journey. And so you fall off into the same endpoint as if you had never even started. Religions that are out, not of revelation, but are sourced in man himself, can only take you halfway, no matter how zealous and of the Spirit you are. Now look at the second half of verse 22, because he says, we worship what we do know. We Jews, for salvation is from the Jews. He's saying, God has chosen us. God has used us as His chief vehicle to bring salvation to this world. In fact, if you go back to the oldest religion, and Abraham in Genesis 12 
That's what God was saying. Abraham, I'm going to bless you so you can bless the whole world with the knowledge of this truth. And out of you is going to come one who's going to be the Savior of all mankind, of all the world, not just the Jews. And they had that. And for a while it was a completed bridge. And they had the truth. They had the Word of God that had been given to them. And now, as God did something unique, walking even among them, they had now the living Word of God. God's final statement to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ Himself. They had the truth. But you know who His greatest enemies were at this very time? To Jesus, the truth? It was the Jews. They had the truth, but they lacked something that the Samaritan woman had. They had no heart. They had no spirit. They had no zeal for the living God. Their religion had slowly hardened into just a group of rules and rituals that missed the whole picture that it takes a heart and truth to be a real religion. Now I say that because I want you to listen closely because there's an application for us in this passage. Within the Christian religions, as the church has received this mantle of salvation in Jesus Christ, you can go to church, you can be a part of a great denomination, you can have the truth, but you can be a half-bridge. Because the truth is not all that's required to have a true religion. You can be a man who thinks you can substitute church attendance or religious observances for your lack of passion for God. You can be a woman who thinks just because you grew up in a strong religious family, a Christian family, that you can substitute that for your lack of authentic love for God. You can be a whole denomination that thinks it can substitute liberal social action and a few contemporary gimmicks that you can substitute those things for a lack of authentic connection from the heart, humbled heart to God. You can think you can do that. And Jesus' statement to you would be the same that it was to the Jews. You got the truth, but you lack the other part of the bridge and you're not going to cross over. That is so important to hear. In some ways, to ask the question, are all religions basically the same? On the one hand, we could say, no, not really. But on the other hand, we could say, yes, they all are futile if they don't have truth and heart. Spirit and truth is the connection over which we cross over to a real vital relationship with the living God. And that was Jesus' answer to the woman Look at verse 23. She says to her, woman, an hour is coming. In fact, it now is when the true worshipers, notice that, true worshipers, shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. And God is spirit. And those who worship Him, not maybe, not might, not can substitute for, not can look for other things in place of, they must worship in spirit and in truth. It must be the heart and the mind. It must be the soul who's given to God. And without that, you don't cross over. Now those are hard things. 
But I want to turn just for a moment and have you turn to 1 Corinthians 15 because with that, I want you to see that in all the religions of the world, there are some real distinctives that Christianity has that no one else has and it would be important for you to leave knowing these. So in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul makes what theologians call the shortest statement of the Gospel. It's in just two verses, but he lists the essential components of the good news that we possess. And in that statement, he gives the three distinctives that set Christianity apart as unique. Here's what he says. For I delivered to you, Corinthians, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There's three unique elements in that passage. The first uniqueness is found in verse 3. It's just in the word Christ. I would call it the incomparable Christ. You see, Confucius and Buddha and Mohammed and Joseph Smith and all other founders of their religions are just simply that, founders of their religion. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is the religion. He is it. If you take Mohammed out of Islam, you still have Islam. If you take Buddha out of Buddhism, you still have Buddhism. If you take Joseph Smith out of Mormonism, you still have Mormonism. But if you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, you have nothing. Nothing. Everything pointed to Him. Everything in the epistles looked back to Him. Everything is focused and stands on Him. And to take Him out of it, you have maybe at best a few little pithy, soft sayings that you can hold on, but they're crumbs in the ruins of Christianity. Because Jesus Christ is Christianity. He's the head, He's the core, He's the heart, and He's the love of Christianity. And nothing exists in Christianity apart from Him. His statement, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, serves notice to every other religion of the world, as hard as that sounds. It serves notice to every other religion of the world that salvation is from the Jews. It is from the Jews. And at the cornerstone of the Jewish faith stands the Messiah. And in John chapter 4, when the woman mentioned the Messiah, he said, the one speaking to you is Him. Who can compare to the incomparable Christ? There's the second uniqueness of Christianity, and it's in its unprecedented way of salvation. It's mentioned there in verse 3, in just a little phrase, died for our sins. Did you know every religion in the world offers basically the same path to eternity? It'd be good for you to study that. But they offer basically the exact same path to eternity. Different practices, but the same path, except Christianity. Every one of them declare that you must get better. You must get better. You better if you want to be saved. Every religion in the world is what we call a works-based religion. Demanding duty, sacrifice, denial, social and spiritual improvement, all for just a very tentative hope 
that somehow, in some way, this climb, this sacrifice, this duty might somehow knock hard enough on the door of eternity to let me in. It's called work-based religions. And all the religions of the world embrace that except Christianity. In Christianity, you don't get better to get saved. You what? You get saved to get better. God has to reach towards you, not you towards Him. He takes the initiative, not you. He reaches into your heart. He regenerates the Spirit. He places His Holy Spirit there. He gives you all the assets that He can to help pull you along by grace, not by works that no man should boast. That's our religion. And it's unique in all the world. It's an unprecedented way of salvation. And then finally, look at verse 4 because you find the last uniqueness of Christianity and that's its unequaled miracle of authentication. It says in verse 4 that He was raised on the third day. Now with all compassion, I think it's a fair question to ask, where is Mohammed? And where is Buddha? And where is Confucius and Joseph Smith? Where are they? They're dead. And they've done good things, many of them. They've come and they've proclaimed and in some ways they've raised the social and spiritual standards of their culture. They've done that. But then they've died. And they've just left us with a little signature, trust me, but with no authentication. Did you know Christianity has been picked over more than any faith as far as its authentication of its truthfulness? And no other religion could stand the scrutiny of that microscopic examination? Do you have any idea the scholars and scientists and anthropologists who've picked over Christianity to find where it could be disproved? But the greatest proof, the greatest authentication is in Jesus' resurrection, a founder who is not dead. Our religion is a religion not found among the dead, but among the living. It's not found under a tombstone, do you know? It's found in a rolled away stone. Our religion is not being directed from a graveyard. It's being directed from a throne room where all the angels are active and dynamic and there's life. Our religion is based not on a trust me from a coffin. It's based on the unequaled miracle of authentication. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our faith. And it's an incredible faith. And it's unrivaled in all the world. So how are we to respond to all this? I want to give you two ways that you can respond practically to the message today. First of all, every Christian should know, every Christian should know, especially in the global village that we're in, because you're going to get pressed tighter and tighter. You're going to rub shoulders more and more with different cultures, and that's okay. That's a wonderful opportunity. But every Christian should know the basic differences that exist between Christianity and other religions. You know, we have in our bookstore this little book that I often hand out in our one-to-one -one training. It's called, So What's the Difference? by Fritz Ridnar. There are over 800,000 copies of this book in print worldwide. 
And the reason it is because it's a very tastefully done, very clear, very documented comparison between Christianity and other faiths. It'll just help you understand what the differences are. It engages the mind. It helps you think it through, not see something with George Burns and say, oh, that's the way it is. It helps you think it through so you can be articulate and you can be compassionate to the seekers that are all around us. If you're a young person, I'd especially encourage you to get this book. Then secondly, I want you to know that every Christian here should know how to share your faith effectively. And listen, you should share it. I hope you feel pressure to share it. Jesus Christ has put you under a command to share it. You may say, I don't know how to do that. We'll help you do that. We have ways of training you. Just helping you train. Not so you can speak down to someone, but you can come next to someone who's a seeker. You can feel that they need to get there and they're not going to get there with their ignorance. And you're going to share it not just from a feeling base, but you're going to share it with a wealth of information. We use the one-to-one -one here a lot. And I want you to know we've got a new tool now. We've got the one-to-one -one training on video. You can go to our bookstore or, uh, or into our library and you can check out six hours of training and you can take it home. You don't need to go to a class. You can sit there and we can train you how to share that tool. But I want you to know the greater concern I have is that we have a heart to share. Those people around us that are going through all kinds of activity and duty to hopefully somehow earn their way into eternity, I hope that hurts you. It hurts me. They need time with us. If you want a good lifetime plan to put in your purpose in life, why am I here? One of the things you can put in is a very practical thing. Say, I'm going to reproduce myself spiritually once every year. If you do that, that'll open up a whole new world. It'll be exciting to you. to change. I've never seen somebody lead somebody to Christ, to Jesus Christ, and not say, I'd want to do that again. Never. And if you haven't ever done that, most Christians haven't, you're missing one of the great experiences in life. But we ought to feel like we need to share that, reproduce our life. Not because we're the best. No, because we're sinners. And we would be damned away from God apart from His grace to us. And we want other people to feed and to drink of the water of eternal life. That's what we should be about. That's what should be motivating us. And we should be reaching out to those around us. And we can do that. Listen, there are many, many Samaritans around you right now who know their need, but don't know how to get there. They have the Spirit, they just don't have the truth. Are all religions basically the same? Only if you believe in Hollywood. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank you for the reminder that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they can be saved other than the name Jesus Christ. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that we know you and that you have made a way for us rather than leaving it up to us to futilely, frantically, and in the end, disastrously try to find a way to you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. 
If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.